Hello, and welcome to The History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Sages, Schools, and Systems, a Historical Overview. In the opening episode, we referred to the temptation of comparing Indian philosophy to classical Greek philosophy. It's a natural enough thought, even setting aside the possibility of actual historical connections between the two cultures. Here we have two ancient civilizations, seen by many subsequent generations as founts of wisdom. And of course, it's hardly an insult to compare Indian philosophy to the tradition that includes such heavyweights as Parmenides, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But when you consider the geographical size of India, its population, and the fact that Indian culture outlived that of the ancient Greeks and Romans, a different comparison may seem more legitimate. Try thinking of the history of philosophy in India as analogous to the entire history of philosophy in Europe. European philosophy has featured a bewildering range of periods and sub-periods, long-running debates and sudden paradigm shifts, dozens of major figures and countless minor figures, many of whom remain poorly studied. In approaching philosophy in India, we should set our expectations to a similar scale. To do full justice to our topic would require hundreds of podcast episodes. After all, nearly 250 episodes of the History of Philosophy podcast have been needed to deal with ancient Greece and Rome, the Islamic world, and part of medieval Christendom. We aren't going to be quite that detailed in the case of India, but we still aspire to tell the story without any gaps. We won't skip from one big name to the next, leaving out in the process vast swathes of philosophy just because they don't interest us or fit some idea we have of what is important and what isn't. Our aim is to present a balanced and impartial picture of the richness, diversity, and depth of philosophy in the subcontinent. As in European philosophy, the relevant texts have been composed in many languages, including Pali, Prakrit, Sanskrit, Malayalam, Gujarati, Tamil, Telugu, Marathi, Persian, Arabic, Urdu, Bengali, Kannada, Punjabi, Hindi, Tibetan, and Assamese. From the time of the British colonial occupation, it has also been written in English. Indian philosophy spans religious divides, with Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Islam being only the most dominant faiths. It includes thinkers of many schools and factions within schools. Its themes include philosophy of law, medicine, mathematics, and politics, even if the most prominent debates concern the philosophy of mind, the study of language, epistemology, and metaphysics. Ideally, one would want the coverage in a series like this to be ecumenical, drawing from different languages, regions, and religious cultures, inclusive of dissenters, heretics, and skeptics, of philosophical ideas and thinkers not themselves primarily philosophers. It should not stop at India's northwestern borders with the Arabic and Persianate world, its northeastern boundaries with Tibet and China, or the southern and eastern shores that link it with lands of Theravada Buddhism today. And ideally, we would begin with the earliest texts of the Indian tradition and carry on the story down to the 20th century. We're not yet entirely sure how far we'll get in striving towards these goals. So far, we have concrete plans to go at least to the revolutionary Buddhist thinker Dignaga, who died in the middle of the 6th century AD. Since we'll be beginning with the Upanishads and other developments from the middle of the 1st millennium BC, this means we will cover at least the first thousand years or so of the history of Indian philosophy. This is not to deny that the second thousand years, too, have been packed with fascinating development and innovation. 
we'll touch on that second millennium of thought in this episode, which will give you a general overview of the whole history of philosophy in India. As we begin our story, we face another temptation, which is to speak of a classical period of Indian thought. Actually, this would go along with the first temptation, since speaking of a classical period would underline the parallel between India and Greece. But the term classical is problematic with respect to the Indian tradition because of the exceptional longevity and continuity of that tradition when contrasted with other classical civilizations. So, unlike Oscar Wilde, who could resist everything except temptation, we're going to insist on a different way of dividing up India's intellectual past, one that isn't borrowed from a history of Western civilization. We'll take our cue from the idea of philosophy as an art of living, something we already discussed in the opening episode. This is a particularly strong feature of our first period, a time when philosophy was seen as a way of life and a vehicle through which one could achieve liberation or release from suffering. We're talking here about texts and ideas that emerged round about the 8th century BC up to the 2nd century AD, a time of what we'll call philosophies of path and purpose. Our story will begin with the ancient wisdom of the Vedas, which were actually set down well before even our earliest period began. Apparently the embodiment of the beliefs of a group of people who called themselves the Aryans, the Vedas offer prescriptions for ritual practice, and can hence be considered a kind of scripture or revelation. Indeed, the Vedas are seen as the ultimate source of the religion we now call Hinduism. As we'll see, they contain passages that reward philosophical reflection. Such reflection began early on with the Upanishads, beautiful and majestic works that comment on and extrapolate from the Vedic texts, in the process articulating the unity of humanity, ritual, and cosmos. And speaking of majestic, this was also the period which gave us the grand Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, some ten times as long as the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. It contains, as a sort of inserted interlude, a famous discourse between two of its characters known as the Song of the Lord, or Bhagavad Gita. The Gita has justly been the subject of a great deal of attention, but we shouldn't overlook the interesting philosophy to be found elsewhere in the epic. Indian philosophical culture was not monolithic, but marked by disagreement and diversity, just like European philosophy. This is already illustrated by our early period, as two schools of thought arose to challenge the values and beliefs of the Vedas and the literature that grew up around them. One of these two schools was Buddhism. The Buddha himself probably lived after the earliest of the Upanishads had already been written. Our phrase, philosophies of path and purpose, is in part inspired by him. The last of his four noble truths is called the truth of the path, with the path leading from suffering to nirvana, a state of health in which one is free from spiritual as well as physical pain. This goal of liberation was shared by the Jaina school, famous for its ethic of absolute non-violence. Though these two schools already feature in the early period, they will be with us throughout our story, as both Buddhism and Jainism divide into various sub-traditions and produce ever more sophisticated and disputatious texts, displaying the rivalry that existed both within and between schools of thought. Before moving on to the next stage in the development of Indian thought, we should warn you that this whole narrative has more uncertain dates than a junior high school dance. Precise chronology for specific thinkers and texts is rarely, if ever, available. On the podcast website, you'll find a timeline for the figures we're going to be mentioning, 
along with timelines for the other traditions already covered in the History of Philosophy podcast. But in the case of India, the dates are highly speculative. Usually, the best one can hope for is a firm relative chronology. If one text directly cites another, we know it is later than the text from which it quotes. But often, not even relative chronologies are possible. Compounding this difficulty is the fact that attaching an author's name to a text is tricky business. Many of the writings we'll discuss are compilations that were edited and re-edited over a long period of time. That already applies to the Upanishads, which were passed down by oral tradition for centuries before being written down. The authors traditionally assigned to philosophical texts may be no more than literary fictions. Then too, a text may be attributed to a famous philosopher as a way to give it extra clout. Even the date of the Buddha is controversial. Tradition teaches that he died in 486 BC at the age of 80. Modern scholarship is pushing his date forward, though, perhaps to somewhere around 400 BC or even later. On the other hand, a recent excavation of the Mahadevi temple at his historical birthplace, Lumbini, has unearthed evidence suggesting that the traditional date may be correct after all. Only time will tell, or maybe it won't. Whenever it was that he lived, it was an interesting time from a philosophical point of view, and the records of his life contain colorful reports of a whole host of unusual and unconventional thinkers. One of them was the founder of Jainism, Mahavira, who lived perhaps a little earlier and shared the Buddha's spirit of defiance against the social and intellectual status quo. We see attempts to meet that challenge in a second period which we will call the Age of the Sutra. With the aforementioned caveats in mind, and mostly for the sake of giving you some dates to bear in mind, we'll say that this period runs from about 100 BC until 350 AD. If you're a longtime listener of the History of Philosophy podcast who's keeping score at home, our first period, the time of the Upanishads, Mahabharata, and the emergence of Buddhism and Jainism, is contemporaneous with the pre-Socratics, Plato and Aristotle, and the rise of the Hellenistic schools. This second period, the Age of the Sutra, would be roughly contemporary with the revival of Platonism and Aristotelianism, and carry on through the lifetimes of men like Plotinus and Augustine. If you're not a long-time listener, it may be more useful to say that the first period overlaps with classical Greece and the Roman Republic, while the age of the Sutra would be contemporary with the Roman Empire up to the time of Christianization under Constantine. The term sutra means thread, and a sutra is both a single philosophical aphorism and a text comprising an entire collection of such aphorisms. While such texts may sound rather disparate and lacking in unity, more tangled than tapestry, the age of the sutra was in fact a period of system building. We see this not so much with sutras themselves as with the commentaries written upon them. These commentaries, called bashya, explicitly set out to construct a systematic body of concepts, weaving the threads into a single cloth. Those who composed the first bashyas, like Shabara, Vatsyayana, and Shankara, to name but three of the commentators, became the founders and, in some cases, even namesakes of long-lived philosophical traditions. It's right about here that people usually speak of the six systems of Indian philosophy that emerge from literature devoted to the sutras. These six systems are Samkhya, Yoga, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Mimamsa, and Vedanta. We can see these as the fruit born of the blossoming sutra literature. 
For instance, the last two of these six schools take their names from the Mimamsa Sutra and Vedanta Sutra, works which attempted to explain the meaning of the earlier Vedic literature. Of course, we will be paying attention to these six traditions, but this is another case where we don't particularly like the way that the terrain is usually mapped. The six-system classification has a strong bias towards mainstream Hinduism's commitment to the veracity of the Vedas, and ignores less mainstream movements as well as all the dissenters, especially the Buddhists and the Jainas. And that's not even to mention more naturalistic, materialist thinkers like Brihaspati, author of yet another sutra that gave its name to an intellectual tradition, the Charvaka Sutra. Yet all these divergent movements belong to a more general trend in which philosophers attempted to crystallize their wisdom in the form of systematic treatises. This is not to say that they dropped the idea that learning philosophy is a way to the highest good, and thus a path with a purpose. But now, the primary task was to describe humankind, the world in which humans find themselves, and the capacities with which humans can know about that world. To use the language of the tradition, the earlier preoccupation with the self is thus joined to an interest in pramanas, the sources of human knowledge, and the prameyas, the world as it is known. This period saw change not just in the way philosophy was written, but also the very language in which it was written. Until the 2nd century AD, works of Buddhist and Jaina philosophy were typically composed in Pali and Prakrit, languages which, while not dissimilar to Sanskrit, were not destined to become the main vehicle for intellectual discussion. When thinkers of these schools switched to Sanskrit, the implications were far-reaching. Now confronted on their own linguistic ground, the system builders of the Vedic tradition found themselves having to defend their ideas as never before. They did so by exploring and adapting the ideas of their antique texts, while also shamelessly borrowing and appropriating Buddhist and Jaina ideas. The result was a third period, which completes the first millennium of Indian philosophy. This age runs from, let's say, 150 to 550 AD, an era of Buddhist analysis and Jaina synthesis. Among the most notable Buddhist philosophers in this period were Nagarjuna and his immediate disciple Aryadeva. Buddhism is not a single monolithic tradition any more than is Indian philosophy as a whole. Nagarjuna initiated one of the four main schools of Buddhist philosophy, known as the Madhyamaka, or Middle Way School. Another of the Buddhist schools, Sarvastivada was systematized in the period by Vasubandhu. Before Vasubandhu, the great Buddha Gosa had studied all the existing Theravada commentaries in Sri Lanka and written a brilliant synopsis in the Pali language. The final school is Yoga Chara, or the school of Buddhist epistemologists. Its inventor was Dignaga, who lived at the end of our period, dying in about 540 AD. Dignaga studied and taught in the great Buddhist university of Nalanda, founded in the same century and destined to become one of the world's leading educational centers 500 years before Bologna was founded in 1088. He owed much to one of his contemporaries, the grammarian philosopher Bhatriyari. His disciple, Dharmakirti, would go on to reinvent Dignaga's system and adapt it to the need of new Buddhist communities in ways that might not have found approval with Dignaga himself. Dharma Kirti's massive treatise, called Commentaries on the Methods of Knowing, was decisive in shaping the next period of Indian philosophy. 
This was a further cosmopolitan age of dialogue in Sanskrit that runs until, let us say, the transitioning of Buddhists like Kamalashila to Tibet in the 9th century. Again, you don't need to worry about remembering all these names just yet. We'll look at them all in more detail later. The take-home message is that, around the time of the fall of the Roman Empire in Europe, Buddhism was developing in philosophical sophistication and proliferating into various branches. Much the same happened in the Jaina tradition. The most important Jaina thinkers in this period are Kundakunda and Umashvati. Umasvati's treatise, the Sutra on What There Is, became the common philosophical heritage of two Jaina sub-traditions, the Digambara and the Shvetambara. As the ambitious name of the treatise implies, it is a systematizing work in Jaina metaphysics, epistemology, and philosophy of mind. Key Jaina ideas are more fully developed in a slightly later thinker, Siddhasena Divakara, who lived in the 5th century AD. Important later Jaina philosophers include Haribhadra Suri and Akalanka, both of whom lived in the 8th century, Prabhakandra, who lived from 980 to 1065, and in the next generation, Hemakandra. Their belief in the principles of tolerance and harmony led them to a philosophy of pluralism in metaphysics and ethics, and to a kind of relativism or perspectivism in epistemology and semantics. This may be as far as we'll go in the coming series of episodes, but it was certainly not the end of philosophy in India. The complex period we've just been sketching was followed by a time of intellectual turbulence and innovation, as philosophers in India increasingly questioned the foundations of the systems they had done so much to construct and defend. A key development was the political decline of Buddhism in India itself, even as it remained vital in neighboring countries, especially Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, China, Korea, and Japan. In India itself, a new era commenced, this time hallmarked by a spirit of uncertainty. Without the Buddhists to provide a foil, the Hindu systems began to question themselves and to interrogate each other. We might therefore describe the period from the 9th to the 13th century as an age of disquiet. Many of its great figures come from Kashmir, including Shaiva thinkers like Abhinavagupta, a genius of the Nyaya school named Jayanta Bhatta, and possibly also the great skeptic Sriharsha and the materialist Udbhata. This age of disquiet runs until the 14th century, when a distinctive form of early modernity began to emerge. Driven perhaps by contact with the Islamic world, Indian philosophers self-consciously set out to innovate, to think with the ancient systems, but no longer defer to them. An astonishingly vast number of works in Sanskrit exist from this enormously rich period, today lying unedited and sometimes in only a single copy in the manuscript libraries around the world. Again, this may sound familiar to longtime podcast listeners, since philosophy from the Islamic world at this same time is marked by the same paradox, massive numbers of texts which have received hardly any scholarly interest. Then came colonialism, and with it new philosophical priorities. Ideas from the European Enlightenment demanded a response, as did the injustices of British rule. The history of Indian philosophy moved into its current phase with the end of colonialism and the partition of India in 1947. Indian thinkers from Gandhi to Nehru to Tagore, often writing in English, brought political and social philosophy to the center stage, where in earlier times the central issues had been epistemology, metaphysics, and the philosophy of language. 
Having now surveyed this vast terrain, even if only briefly, we could now return to the question of what it means to speak of philosophy in India. As we said in the first episode, this is a Greek word that does not exist in Sanskrit or the other languages of ancient India. In its absence, scholars have often highlighted the Sanskrit term darshana as an equivalent, or at least as a way to refer to an Indian philosophical system. But this may be misleading. Derived from a verb meaning to see, it can certainly mean a point of view, a perspective, or a doctrine, yet it can also mean vision, which could suggest that Indian philosophical systems are based on insight rather than argument. We would therefore prefer to point to an earlier Sanskrit term, anvikshiki. This means something like critical inquiry or investigation. And this word, unlike darshana, was in fact adopted and used by the classical Indian philosophers themselves. One of the earliest known texts in which the term anvikshiki is discussed is the Shastra or Treatise on Aims, a work on government, politics, and economics dating perhaps from the 4th century BC. Its author, Kautilya, a royal minister in the Magadha Empire, is said to have written it to educate princes in the skills necessary for successful and prosperous rule. Kautilya states that there are four branches of learning in which young princes should be trained. These are Anvikshiki, the method of rational investigation, Thrayi, the religious canon made up of the three Vedas, Varta, the science of material acquisition, such as trade and agriculture, and Dandaniti, meaning rule by stick, in other words, political administration and government. Kautilya then explains the meaning of the first method, Anvikshiki. He writes, Distinguishing with proper reasons, between good and evil in the Vedic religion, between profit and loss in the domain of wealth generation, and between right policy and wrong policy in political administration, and determining the comparative validity and invalidity of all these disciplines in special circumstances, Anvikshiki renders help to people, keeps their minds steady in woe and weal, and produces adroitness of understanding, speech, and action. For Kautilya, Anvikshiki is not just one branch of knowledge among many, but rather a means of studying the proper aims and methods of knowledge as such. So he adds, Investigation has always been considered as a lamp for all branches of study, the means for all activities, and the support for all religious and social duties. Kautilya also lists the different sorts of investigation known to him, namely Samkhya, Yoga, and Lokayata. These are also the names of early Indian philosophical systems, but Kautilya more likely means to refer to different methods for approaching a philosophical inquiry, by listing and enumeration, by dividing and reconnecting, or by empirical experimentation. Early though this work is, it lays out an agenda that will be followed by many centuries of Indian thinkers. The three methods of Kautilya will continue to be used, but also supplemented by two more, Nyaya and Mimamsa. These may ring a bell, since they also became the names of two schools of thought that will arise in what we are calling the Age of the Sutras. Nyaya, which will unsurprisingly enough become a hallmark of the Nyaya system, refers to a procedure of observation and deduction. It was developed in the context of medical diagnosis and prognosis. Mimamsa, meanwhile, is a technique for interpreting texts. Like the three methods listed by Kautilya, Nyaya and Mimamsa are thus in the first instance nothing more or less than techniques of reasoning. Such techniques will come to characterize philosophy in India, 
just as much as, or rather even more than, any body of doctrines. In the age of the sutra, inquiry will come to be seen as an end in itself. But in the earliest period, such systematic concerns remain mostly implicit, as philosophers search above all for the path to liberation. This is the path we'll begin to travel next time, as we start to look in more detail at the origins of the history of philosophy in India.